0: one of the things that i mentioned to miguel is this kind of the the absolute agnosticist approach um, that i also have to say i am uh, i am jumping into the conversation from a from a less familiar angle with your work so i some things might be like stating the obvious or, or, or assuming things that uh, that i don't know so please correct me when i'm when i'm mistaken. but just the feeling of um of wanting uh to be open to new knowledge uh while at the same time, time acknowledging that of course this knowledge may be so vast and our approach may be so limited to to conceptualizing it to grasping it through language to being able to communicate with each other about it and say you know there is something beyond yet i don't know uh, what that is i was wondering if you can just give a kind of very general uh, uh Panning of, of what you're feeling, what your kind of um, intuition is with regards to that. What are we doing when we're saying we are agnostic and this is the kind of most absolute position from, from which we speak? Um, we, as in people who want to be challenged by new knowledge. Um, but then, well, the paradox that is inherent in that, of you know, already coming with a certain baggage when saying that limits the the expansiveness the absoluteness of the of the agnosticism if that makes sense it's kind of
1: it does yeah yeah that's a good question question. but (laughs) yeah that's a great question to start off with i think that's probably the best question to start off with um so so let's think about this question of basically the question okay and what i think with respect to just first my field of studies, which is religious studies, how it's been, you know, it it came from a very colonialist uh, milieu, I guess you could call it, from the 1800s, in which there was a certain sense of absolute knowledge and security in recognizing a tradition of religion as being what was considered to be superior to others and looking at like say indigenous cultures and seeing those as being um inferior i mean just to put it completely honestly and this is this is how religious studies became a field sadly and um so when people in the 1950s 60s 70s and today Uh, recognize this colonial, you know, the colonial um, soil from which religious studies sprang. Um, And also um, understanding, you know, having the civil rights movement here in the United States, especially with respect to indigenous cultures, you know, and the theoretical um, bases for those, which couldn't be denied. Um, I think that my field early on had, uh, had a shift in its, the, uh, basis from which we ask questions. And I think what happened was, and it's a good thing, and this all happened before I got into the field, and thank goodness. Um, although I have to say that a lot of people, uh, didn't get that memo, <laughs> but that's okay, because like, the vast majority did, okay? And it's this idea that, um... hate to say this and put it so bluntly we don't know shit right about the universe for one thing right and also specifically about um, the ways in which we come to have some kind of certain knowledge now also you have to understand that I have a background in philosophy as well and so philosophy and religious studies are two distinct disciplines so I also started to read philosophers from a perspective of religion and I begin to see that a lot of, like, say, pre-Socratic, Socratic philosophers in the Western tradition um, were were very, very infused with questions of religion and mysticism. And philosophers, especially modern philosophers, they don't read the, their own um, precedents. You know, the philosoph- they don't even read their own philosophers this way. And so, um, so and I'm going to take an example. So we have... Um, Martin Heidegger, much maligned philosopher for good reason, but also really interesting. Okay. And I actually use uh, Heidegger's uh, work to frame the, the book that I, um, that came out and got a lot of attention is called American Cosmic and it's, um, it's about looking at our space programs and also looking at the question of extraterrestrial intelligence, which right now is um, something that's being looked at all over the world uh, in developing countries. And um, I mean, our country just recently uh, released, the military just recently released a statement, well, actually a large report um, a year from last week about extraterrestrial intelligence. And, you know, perhaps it's, you know, they don't say perhaps, they say, yes, it's here. You know, we don't know what it is though. And um, so, you know, so this question is is kind of the question right now. And um, so going back to this understanding of agnosticism so this is something that happened to martin heidegger this german philosopher i'm sure your audience is familiar with him either loves or hates him there's no in between it seems with his work um and i don't blame anybody for their position uh but this is what i found interesting to him early in my uh career i guess you could call it or um i don't even know if you could call what i do a career it's like a life way um so Martin, uh, so uh, Heidegger was somebody who had been trained in the Socratic tradition and then at some point, you know, he, he was doing straight up analytic philosophy for a long time, somewhat like Wittgenstein. At some point, he met Zen Buddhists and these were the Zen Buddhists who were part of the Kyoto School in Japan and he had an experience what uh what he termed and friends of his at the time would call a satori experience he had like a sudden enlightenment experience which is a mystical experience and after that his philosophy completely shifted and changed because he realized that he didn't know what he was talking about (laughs) and he was making a lot of conclusions about things for which he actually just had questions so he pivoted back to the question which i think and you can see it in his work so his his earlier work were statements that you know like um treatises things that are very the genre of philosophy right of modern philosophy um he shifted after that and started to ask questions and he would title his essays as questions what is what is technology what is you know all of these kinds of things and that is significant and most people don't actually when they assess his work they don't actually talk about the influence he had with these zen buddhists of the kyoto school and how that i mean some do but not a lot well i think that's the very thing that we should be looking at because how did this influence him what it did was it it put him back to the to the idea that the question is probably where we need to be. And that's what I think agnosticism is, is this idea of not concluding, because especially when you get to the idea of extraterrestrial life or intelligence or something like that, we're not even at, I mean, we're, we're very, you know, we're coming from a perspective of we don't know. So how can we make any conclusions? Um, A lot of people want answers, and there are no answers at this time, and I don't even know if we can have answers. So I guess agnosticism is the only, in my opinion, the only honest strategy that we can use um, in in this way, at this point, with this question. But also I think in general, when we're talking about, you know, like ultimate types of questions, I think this has to be our strategy and for some reason people don't actually think of it as uh, a valid place to, to start and to, to actually to you know it's a journey i think agnosticism is like a journey so i hope that answers your question with respect to agnosticism
0: i think yeah a little bit and if i can have a small follow-up question which is also paradox paradoxical in itself because it's about the question do you think that the kind of conceptual shape of the question is something that we cannot dig deeper down into as a, as a you know, querying and, and and trying to be predictive of, or not predictive, let's say that, that like predictive is one mode, one modality of the question, the, the, the ability to to be able to say I want to kind of see a pattern and then follow up on that pattern and see where I can find it in other places, but the, the question has many mo- more modalities than that, but do you think it's something very basic that that there is almost no other kind of grip, no other kind of uh, um, analytical beginning point from which we can jump off as kind of communal social linguistic beings? Or is there something then that can be analyzed about the communal social linguistic being that can say something about the question that can break it down maybe to other uh, components? Again, I'm kind of looping into (laughs) too many footnotes, but I think...
1: Really great question so i think that absolutely we have to do that and that's where i find you know we have different disciplines and sets of tools that allow us to ask us the same question but in different ways so um the research that i do now i am involved with other scientists and i'm not a scientist and so um but we have the same questions and so we have the same questions but we have different tools and strangely, I, they approached me for help on understanding, you know, what they were doing. And then I recognized that, you know, because a lot of people think, well, if you're going to look at extraterrestrial intelligence in this community, one has to go to scientists. Well, that's actually not the case. And um, I think that a lot of people, you know, I'll be in a room with, and um, somebody in my book who, I, I used pseudonyms at first because this was something that wasn't talked about when I wrote the book, which was not very long ago, frankly. Um, so I had to use pseudonyms for some of the scientists, one of whom is Gary Nolan, who's at Stanford. And he is a very well-known scientist and also one of the top scientists at that university. And now he's, he's come out as the person who I, you know, who's in the book. And um, what's interesting is we'll be, I work with him still, we'll be in a room of people and we'll be talking and everyone will go to him, you know, like, what's, you know, what's this or what's that about the topic? And he'll say, ask Diana, you know, and then they'll look at me like they don't even know what, where to start or why would she know, kind of thing, you know? And so I think that's really interesting because, um, i didn't you know (laughs) who would have thought you know that people in the humanities had some valid quote-unquote answers or had some valid input into something that most people would assume would be a scientific uh you know the answers would come from science and um i think that's ironic and kind of funny but also um i think that just goes back to this question of you know what kind of you know you know how to like your question like how can we possibly then you know how can we move forward if we're just stuck in the question well no no we move forward because we do have tools we just have to use those tools um to further the question right and further like our you know we'll we'll get info and i think that um some of the info is is Specific. So, with this specific question of things that people encounter that happen to be aerial phenomena, well, there's been a whole history, and we can uncover that history in every tradition now. Every tradition has this history, kind of like um, this idea of uh, night paralysis. Have you heard of night paralysis? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, I've had
0: it many, many times.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, so again, um, this kind of thing there are traditions in every culture of night paralysis and they're all different right and some of them have similarities but uh what is this thing night paralysis that people you know have and um you know we have like everything from very reductive scientific theories about what it is to very you know kind of like mystical kind of uh superstitious blah 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 you know that kind of those theories so the, so what do we do is we look at all of those we identify patterns and then we uh keep our minds open that's what i suggest uh, and yeah. you know things like that
2: it's uh, this is very interesting because you mentioned a couple of things uh some of these points we were talking Sonia and i about this about this drive towards certain patterns that appear in ordinary and less ordinary forms of religion. And then this uh, parallelism with sleep paralysis, because you mentioned this, and it remind me of uh, something that uh, obviously you know, which is this Jacques Vallée characterization of the UFO as an object from um, our collective unconsciousness so that tries to challenge or defy or break the control of a set of um, ideas that they are gaining dominance in our explanatory power from from the sciences or from the methodologies that we use in in technological uh, progress at the expense of ethics. and But this, obviously, as you know, uh, is, is quite interesting because if it is an object from our collective unconsciousness, such as, for example, sleep paralysis, what do we do with um, the fact that many or virtually <laughs> all the astrobiologists suspect that it's quite unlikely that we are alone. Uh, Probably sooner than later we will find evidence about artificial or extraterrestrial forms of intelligence. So, if what we are addressing here is a new form of religion, as you argued, to some extent, I guess Mm -hmm. Uh, this, uh, it could be argued that it has certain evolutionary function, but what's beyond that? What's beyond this evolutionary function? What's the drive that moves us uh, towards that sort of liminal area? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or what do we do if Actually, what we are facing is this uh, challenge of evidence and, let's call it, uh, probabilistic, uh, (laughs) um, I don't know, traction that makes us uh, confident with the idea of accessing extraterrestrial Uh, forms of intelligence (laughs) do you see this dichotomy
1: yeah 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 uh that's a good question okay so (laughs) i mean it's okay there are so many things that in what i'm gonna like but i'm gonna like address them because this is what i think is most interesting frankly um so let's say that it's okay. You know the work of Jacques Vallee. Hmm. He basically suggests that. And by the way, he has a PhD in information science. Yeah, and yeah. He got this in the 1960s. I mean, you know, before we even heard of information science, right? And um, and he's an astronomer as well. And he also worked on ARPANET, which was the military proto Internet. Um, and actually, when I first started doing this work, like. 10 years ago, really, um, I got all of his his old 1970s journals and essays that he was putting out as an information scientist on um, doing this work in, you know, he was doing this in, in the early 70s. And um, and this, is a, this was kind of parallel to his UFO stuff. Okay? So I thought that was weird, and I wanted to know what these connections were. Now I understand them. But, um, He describes it, this, you know, the UFO phenomenon as a a, um, control mechanism, right? As a control mechanism. And basically in that, so I've had occasion, I know him well now, and I've had occasion on many times to kind of ask him what, you know, what... Can you, t- can you unpack this, right? What is it, a control mechanism? I mean, is it us or is it something trying to control it? So he said he doesn't know, okay? But he says that um, if it is us, let's look at it from an evolutionary standpoint. Why would it be doing this, Doing Why would we be doing this to ourselves, right? Why would we be, prom- you know, kind of like um, manifesting these kinds of events on a conscious level? uh, Yeah, on a conscious level in order to, you know, control our drives, I guess you could call it, or something like that. Well, I mean, I think that that could be easily answered because every, if you look at, if you ask historians who do the stuff that I do, you find, and these are people, when I say historians, I'm not talking about necessarily PhD historians. I'm talking about people who've engaged in research, primary resources, research into different Uh, like uh, traditions, like the Japanese tradition. So if you look at the Japanese UFO and the Jap, you'll find that in um, when Japan started to have contact with Western culture, that's when a lot of people started to report UFOs, like UFOs that look like modern day UFOs, right? Where they look like saucers that come down. They have people in them or beings in them that kind of are anthropomorphic right Mm -hmm. and so when i in at the very end of american cosmic i'm looking at the colonial place of what we now call you know the southwest the american southwest where there's indigenous cultures at the time in the 1600s there were um there were there was contact between spanish and indigenous people and what do you have but you have this you know this nun the Spanish nun believing that she's being taken in like a vehicle to this area and you know and then New Mexico in that area becomes kind of ground zero for the UFO mythology here and so what what's happening I mean I think that you know we've got to look at these kinds of things not necessarily like literally that UFOs appeared when when culture when there was cultural contact which in many ways was violent okay violent cultural contact here um so i have brought this up many times and people don't seem to want to hear it okay and that's okay but i still find it in it and i'm glad that you you actually bring this up even though i don't probably don't think that you're bringing this up but my answer here is that there's something about us going off into space and doing this new, you know, kind of like colonial venture. Like we're, we're heading off, just like, you know, people forever got in their boats and went on the ocean and didn't know <clears throat> where they were gonna land and often landed in territories where they met uh, the other, right? Others, um, people that were not them. People who, uh, in many ways, a lot of times, what they would call non-human, okay? and so what is it that we're doing now we're venturing into space and who would would we encounter most likely if we encountered any things they would be non-human any kind of life it would be non-human obviously right because it's not earthly so i think what we're having is we're having um obviously to me we're having a new belief belief system that's you know uh, a new religiosity i would call it Um, to accompany, because that's what happened during the time period of, you know, the Japanese contact with Westerners completely changed each culture, right? But especially the Japanese culture because of, you know, kind of the pervasiveness of the West. Um, And you see changes in their spirituality as well. Um, Same thing with indigenous here, right? Um, in the southwest of the United States, uh, which were then colonies just colonies. So um, So the question is so if we view it as evolutionary um, What kind of benefit to humans accrue, you know, what do we get from? doing? you know from kind of manifesting this in many ways one could call it like an archetype, right? Um What kind of benefit could we get? I mean, this is a question I have. Um, I think that I think in many ways it could prepare us on a one level to encounter something that is actually a non you know non human. Um, but then this falls naturally into a um, something that I think is is an interesting adjunct to what you're bringing up. And this in this is a something that's actually the case okay so when when you do look at say certain religions traditional religions let's look at since it's my it's what i've studied most of my life the christian tradition you'll see that in the very beginning of that tradition it was an anti-government uh movement it was against rome right so there were uh jewish factions that were against rome it is known that people in um, jesus's uh you know in his tribe or whatever you want to call it in his uh, his group his movement uh, they happened to be uh, people who were zealots who were like you know anti-Rome they wanted to overthrow Rome Um, okay so Jesus himself we don't know what he said because he's never written anything Uh, but we can looking back and doing the you know the research we can say that he was definitely absolutely not pro-Roman. I mean his followers were calling him the son of God when Augustus Caesar was called the son of God. That could get you killed for treason which happened to Jesus. He was murdered for treason by the Romans. All right so um what happened then? Well hundreds of years later that religion became the state religion of Rome in a very ironic twist. So a, uh, a, not, I wouldn't call it a religion I'd call it Christianity a uh, movement right a religious movement religiosity in the first hundred years of its manifestation in the middle east and in africa which is where it kind of congregated right and then boom hundreds of years later it gets incorporated okay so let's think about that so it gets incorporated but how does it do that well it goes through some processes which include redaction of texts and uh, promotion to the community. And that's exactly what you can see is going on here with the belief, at least here in the United States. Uh, the, the government is on board with you know promoting certain narratives about UFOs. And um, that actually goes, in many ways, it contradicts what actual people who say they've had these experiences uh, believe. And it also goes against a lot of uh, UFO religions because we do have specific UFO religions, like the Nation of Islam, is uh, comes directly out of the founder Elijah Muhammad's uh, experience of uh, what he called a mothership. So, so you do see this kind of thing happening here, which is fairly typical.
0: Hmm.
2: So, uh, yeah, but traditional religions they have these uh, rituals and dogmas and somehow they pave the way for the development of the individual and the community and i don't quite see the like the parallels in the case of ufos and aliens i see this uh this thing that you mentioned uh the um, several points in in in, uh, american cosmic when you talk about the ground zero for religion in terms of okay this place for example these areas in mexico etc but it's the ground zero for forms of uh, religious movements that uh, don't you think that they they have a different evolutionary dynamism in comparison with with more traditional forms of religion. Because it's it's like a set of beliefs that, um, for example, in this uh, challenge towards the state or challenge of certain consensus reality, operates in a sort of more individual or more niche Uh, I don't know how to characterize this it's like at a different sort of level uh, entails certain um, you need to be initiated in these forms of knowledge you know what I mean
1: yes I do it's
2: more like a sort of cult or inner circle knowledge rather than the outspring of a new religious movement, no?
1: Okay, so you're saying that the UFO um, cult, you could call it, uh, would have its own... you're talking to very... I think you're talking very specifically about what we see here in the U.S. with the space program and Lou Elizondo.
2: Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't see this as authentic. Okay. I don't see this as... I mean, I, I know, I, like... I do see that the... Specifically, in the Russian and American space programs, the people who who did the calculations, you know, the rocket calculations, right? So you've got, like, in Russia... Constantine Joukowsky right and then you have here Jack Parsons each of them in their own ways was engaged in a mystical tradition yeah that, okay so so they took from that tradition and basically created something amazing right they did and um, However, what we see now is completely different than what they were doing. Um, What we see with the space program now, you still see those rituals, by the way. So um, in launching rockets and satellites here in the US, um, a lot of times when they're launching things that like, not for public view, they have rituals that they engage in. And I know this only because I know people who who have been doing this since they were 18 and now are in their 60s. And you know, they they do the certain rituals, they have their initiations and stuff, but it's also the military. So, it's um they're not they're not Jack Parsons. They're not Tchaikovsky. They're not actually uh, there might be the structure of those rituals but for you know so I guess uh so but there's there's people who actually are connected to those mystical traditions like Parsons and like Joukowsky when by the way their traditions are completely different they're they're mystic uh you know their ideas are totally different about but the but the effect was the same
2: Yeah, no, I think mystic is the word because it's this lack of mediation
1: acting
2: certain knowledge, no? So you have, or we have, uh, at least myself, a Catholic background, so everything is about mediation in the religious experience. You have to to church, the priest, blah, blah, blah. But if you are part of a sighting, let's say, you have direct access to experience, whatever you have. And this is what's going on with UFOs, etc.
1: Yes. Yeah. Then so I, this is it. This is a great question, this question of mediation. And I, what I view is happening right now in the United States is that it's, there's a scramble to mediate this experience because peop, too many people are having it. <laughs> and I think that's awesome that people are having these experiences with, outside of the structure of a religion frankly i think it's a really good thing and i think that is assisted by digital technologies so just think if jesus lived in our time period or if you know siddhartha gautama buddha lived in our time period and was able to transmit this kind of experience over like you know through podcasts or through you know whatever youtube you you name it i mean i think that's powerful so i think a lot of people are having these experiences of seeing UFOs or something like that, experiencing it, videoing it, because they have the tools to do that. You know, all of us now have, you know, cameras at the ready. And then we transmit that immediately um, through social media before it gets taken off, you know, Google or whatnot. And I think that that's what's happening. And I think that that, is, that could be potentially, a, potentially a revolutionary thing. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen. But yeah, I think that is what is happening. I think that there's like, I think they are trying to like, honestly, that's what my opinion is. I could be wrong, but that's what I see.
0: Can I ask a quick question? So in which way uh, do you see, like, can you expand a little bit on the on the sort of positive after effects of people having these experiences?
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, it absolutely changes their whole life direction. So, you know, um, what I saw and what I was, um, I mean, it changed me too. And I'm not, I haven't, you know, I'm not even a a person who who has seen something. Um, But just by being in the vicinity of people who have been experiencers, are experiencers, when I say experiencers, I, for your listeners, these would be people who are engaged in having uh, experiences of UFOs or what they consider to be uh, non-human intelligence, usually extraterrestrial. And so some of these people happen to be super amazingly credentialed, right? So, um, uh, some, like I said, Gary Nolan at Stanford University, lifelong experiencer, and um, Tyler from my book, um, other people I know who have these experiences it changes their lives to the point that they live um, they live in a different world than, than what you'd call... I mean, they experience things that uh, they're helpful to people. Um, they consider that they have some type of um, mission, okay? And it's usually very well articulated in their minds what this mission is, and it's different for each one. But they say, I feel like I need to do this and then they do it. Um, To me, it looks like a religious conversion because I know what a religious conversion looks like just from being, you know, a person who studies religion, um, those kinds of things. So, you know, if you want to identify patterns, these are transformative experiences for people and they're transformative in the sense that uh, they drop out of the The society that you know where you know we're supposed to do these things to be successful they don't care anymore you know they're just about their mission and they they have a low tolerance for that other life they don't have that life anymore and um, yeah this could be potentially pretty cool if this happened Um, do I think it's gonna happen I'm kind of a no I don't I just don't think that and the reason I don't think that is because of what I see in uh, is happening, and I've have been seeing this since the release of my book. Um, you know, just the very quick by our government, the very quick kind of um, stifling of other narratives, just by virtue of having their own people out there promoting their narrative, and they and they usually have people that are very loud. Whereas people that have gone through this, they they don't even want to be on social media or anything like that. In fact, almost everybody I knew who was part of these programs of study, um, they weren't on social media at all. And so they didn't really want to be involved in what we would consider to be the, you know, it's almost like they've dropped out. Like, you know, there's that saying back in the 60s of I think it's called tune in, turn on, drop out, you know? they kind of have done that, <laughs> yeah. but they're very effective people, but they're just not, you know, no one would, if you said this person does this and has done this for UFOs or whatnot, the average person who's interested in UFOs would never have heard of them.
0: So the creation of a counter narrative uh, that, that, that searches for truth um, in a way like, uh, you know, of course, we, we we as you mentioned just now as well, we have witnessed so many different movements, sort of psychedelic movement uh, and, and different types of religious movements, and the UFO uh, movement that tried to get that that become that gain traction and then and then also become countered uh, because of a of a certain um, yeah hegemonic uh, type of control. There are many different answers to what kind of control that could be and what the motivations behind it are. Um, but why why, me, um, why? why for me? Why? Why for me? Why? Why? I'm trying to ask this: Is why um, would you say that the techno brackets capitalist narrative is so powerful and is so effective and is so? Um, so non-countered and so so effective in actually maneuvering itself in many of the the, the similar ways that for example uh the things that do get countered as mystic or you know mad people who have psychosis also have sort of visions and and have uh undergo transformations and and sort of almost religious types of or almost religious types of conversions you could say um, but why is it that when technology does it, it's okay? <laughs> would be the question? Yeah. for the general narrative?
1: Right, right, right. So okay, let me get let me make sure that I understand your question. Um, so you're suggesting that there that it's okay, so there are many narratives of UFO experience. and so, so there are some that are more socially acceptable than others.
0: Uh, many, many types of transformative, sort of mystical experiences, and most of them get dismissed. Yet, oh, like when, when things, that, yeah, then when, when things that happen in a similar way, like for example, I don't know, very advanced VR, or you know, the telegraph. I was thinking of uh, the the first telegraph message uh, from Morse. It was like, what, what hath God brought? Like, just this sort of. <laughs> when when technology does it, it's okay. But when anything else, any other narrative approaches it, it's it's. Uh, it's not valid. That would be the question. Yes, right. yes.
1: I think that's that's a great question. Right. So, why is it that, you know, this, this idea of the UFO then, the flying saucer, you know, because that's what it was in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and then it kind of morphed into something different. Well, I think that's a great question. And we should be asking that question, but I don't think anybody really is. You know, why is it okay when when it's it comes in this form um well i think that's where we have to go back to um something that miguel asked about or basically because uh, i was going to follow up with that it's this idea of ground zero right of new mexico well new mexico is also ground zero of um military um weapons right and i think that i hate to say it well i don't hate to say it it's just the the case that there's this idea too of these things being linked to weapons. Either they are weapons and we're misidentifying them, or they are. Um, you know, there's a whole idea that they're trying to prevent us from using weapons on ourselves and the Earth. There, I don't know if you know about that, but there's a huge yeah. narrative, gener- yeah, that you know they they show up when we put. Um, weapons into space, and they they deactivate, you know, the weapons and things like that. Okay, so there's that too. So it so in many ways, this is absolutely linked to weaponization, military weaponization, and things like that.
2: I need to um, interrupt, but it's a very very minor point. But I think it's really relevant. I don't know if you watch Twin Peaks: The Return. Have you watched it?
1: No, I have not watched that.
2: No. Oh my god, so I cannot say something, but it's something that it's incredibly relevant to this point, Ground Zero Trinity. But you need to watch it.
1: Okay, Uh, everybody tells me I need to watch it. Particularly
2: the episode number 8 is something that, I mean, you were talking about this in this moment. But yeah, go ahead.
1: Spoilers free. Yeah, yeah, that's like, it's so weird how like, okay, yes, I agree with you that popular culture, like, either tells us what they're doing, or I don't know, it's just like reflects it, or they're, you know, it is the living, our living unconscious, you know, I'm not sure. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so I mean, there's this, you know, I mean, that's something that is so obvious, but, but we just don't see it. I don't know if it's because here in the United States, we're so infused with military rhetoric right we all have guns you know i mean think about it we are just like (laughs) it's uh it's it's scary for me but i mean it's like it's just the the place where i live it's almost like the air i breathe and the water if i was a fish the water i live in it's infused with military might in terms of um it's ideological but it's even beyond that it's like the water i drink right and so um so of course there's going to be if there will be a religiosity or new religion supplanting what we have and there and it is doing that in so many different ways and i can tell you how it's doing that it will be this this weaponized um transcendent Thing, which is the flying saucer it's going to be that and the flying saucer then we imagine it to be so many things we imagine it to be the best of artificial intelligence right kind of sentient artificial intelligence we imagine it to be uh advanced technology right we imagine it to be something that prevents us from killing each other and ourselves and the earth Okay, so we imagine all these things, which we imagine deities to be. And um, how does it infuse our other religions? So in the United States, people who have been either Jewish, uh, Muslim, or um, Christian, and they have had these experiences like UFO experiences, what they do, a lot of times what I've noticed is that at first it challenges their traditional religion. But, and a lot of times, like I'll take a person that I know who is a Baptist Christian from the South, had an experience of a UFO. He was a very Baptist Christian. And it, his, his uh, the people at his church told him that th- these were demons, which at first he believed. But then he started to think about it and did a lot of research, you know, and realized that what he saw was real So what he did was he interpreted it back into his own religion. And he said, the Bible has, has always been talking about UFOs. And we also have this on a mass scale. Like if you look at, you know, ancient aliens or things like that, it's basically teaching people how to reread the alien narrative into their own traditions. And my book actually goes right into that, which I never intended it to happen that way. In fact, when I wrote my book, I was basically telling people—I mean, I say it in the first few paragraphs—everything you see in the media has nothing to do with what this phenomenon actually is. The media is going to tell you, you know, that it don't. But nobody really got that part. So I think that a lot of the uh, the book became popular just because of the timing. When actually the things that I was saying, I think I was trying to warn people about this new way in which you're going to be, you know, the new kind of uh, spin that you're going to get on the transcendent. Here it is. This is it. But people don't read Most people don't read it that way. But that's what I actually intended it to be about.
2: In relation to the timing, do you want to comment? Because I was going to mention this a little bit before when you uh, navigated uh, a couple of corners that I think had to do with this but do you want to comment on these two uh, interesting moments Uh, one a year ago um, the other one a couple of months ago uh, the independent study on unidentified aerial phenomena that was led by David Spergler. and then the Congress, I think was a month ago or a couple of months ago, with this public hearing into yeah. UFOs. So do you want to comment these this moments in the aftermath of the publication of your book, etc.?
1: Yes. Okay, so um, I started the research about 11 years ago, right, mm. 10 11 years ago and then i published the book the book was finished in um, i think it was 2018 i'd sent it in it was in press and were well, actually i'm sorry it was 2017 because as it was in press uh so not published um there were and, but it was given as advanced copies to various people of whom i did, was only um, amazed to find out right later um, so it was given by Oxford to various people to read and comment on. And um, during that time period, the New York Times released the... It's very famous...
2: Yeah, the article. Yeah.
1: yeah. So um, that was Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal and Helene... I can't remember her last name. I'm sorry. Helene. <laughs> so three people released those. And um, that's kind of... So that happened, and obviously my book then gets published right right after that, and um, the timing was strange, in my opinion, but this all happened. Um, the New York Times actually reached out to me in a series of phone calls, or I should say authors uh, representing the New York Times, or they're going to publish in the New York Times, reached out to me, and they wanted to know who... James and Tyler were cuz they wanted to feature them. But I wasn't going to tell them. I was going to allow James and Tyler to come out if they wanted to, but I wasn't going to do that. And so that happened and it was a it was a series of conversations that at first was pretty contentious, frankly. And then became better as they realized I wasn't going to do that. So they just they were looking, you know, they're, they're journalists, they want to out, you know, they want a story. So you can't actually blame them, I suppose. Um, but that wasn't my job <laughs> to do. Uh, so, so, yes, that happened. And then what you had is you had a series of, you know, some would call it, like, disclosure moments.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which is an interesting word to use. So, but we've had these disclosure moments before where the government has said, there are these things, we don't know what they are. Right? Like the Robertson panel, you know, so, I mean, I'm not quite sure. I think that, um, I just stand by what I said in the first few paragraphs of the book, which is what you see in the media, I would suspect it, especially given the, you know, the precedent for what we already know about what our government, this, the United States government has said about UFOs in the past. You know, be swamp gas or this. I mean, these are people that people are now believing, right? And but they've they've lied before about it for for maybe legitimate reasons. I don't know, but um, that's just the way it's been. And so yeah. So what do I see? I see the narrative that happens in many traditional religions, where you get a very powerful religiosity, almost like a cult movement, a movement of the people that uh maybe pushes against status quo and then gets domesticated that's what i'm seeing
2: mm, yeah and the but the, the the problem is that obviously on the internet after this couple of articles uh, that gain quite a lot of attention you, you had these certain reactions negative reactions to your book negative reactions to the articles uh, trying to blame the events that are described in the first article and to some extent your experience with Tyler at the beginning of the book as some sort of media operation of to the stars this company by you know this media company of Tom uh, DeLonge So it's a little bit confusing, uh, like, uh, confusing. The, um, the events that you are describing, with, for example with Tyler, no? in your visit to this place in New Mexico, the coverage by media in these uh, New York Times articles, and then certain reactions by skeptics or internet users I don't know, but it generates a sort of chaotic milieu, uh, which is very, very difficult, to, very difficult to navigate. From my perspective, which is a sort of, I don't know, uh, someone who is detached from these sort of internet subcultures of skeptics or UFO followers or whatsoever, is it was something extremely confusing confusing, and I don't know if you can shed some some light on 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 the coverage by the New York Times yeah. and yes, yes. the events that you experienced etc
1: yes absolutely and I'm glad that you are asking me this and I'm glad that you're asking me face-to-face, like we're actually talking. So you can see me and I can see you. And that's what what needs to happen because it's absolutely confusing. So if I were just someone who did, I wouldn't say deep research, but just a little bit of research on this topic, I would see this as a huge, almost like um, a mediation, right? An intentional mediation starting with like this book by this professor published by oxford university press where it appears as if this professor is being misinformed like there's intentional misinformation about these debris that she happens to find in new mexico by this shady guy who's associated (laughs) i mean it all looks pretty weird right and it's it and the thing is is that yeah it's weird but I didn't know all those things were going to happen after my, you know, while my book was in press. I had no idea this was this was going to happen. And what I was doing was religious studies. What I was doing was basically my job, which is, or what I do, which is basically, I thought, how could these two incredible scientists who I respect and this one who has an amazing um he, you know, he's like he's an invisible in my country, but he's done so much to change my country, right? So he's involved with the space program. He was, you know, he's friends of all these astronauts. He's there when when major when major satellites are being launched into space. Like this is a guy who is most likely, you know, he's he's on, you know, he he knows all about SpaceX and everything like that. So I mean, and. He happens to be like a multi-millionaire who flies around in his own jet and i mean he's just someone who you couldn't make up and i thought wow okay he's trying to tell me if i want to know about ufos that i actually have to have physical evidence of them and see them because i don't believe in them and he's right okay and so this took a year and a half and i explain that in my book for me to actually agree to meet this man and i decide that i'm not meeting him alone I'm gonna meet him with my friend Jeff Krepel, who is a colleague of mine at Rice University. And so I asked Jeff to meet him with me at an American Academy of Religion conference. And just for lunch, right? He turns out to be this incredibly charismatic, normal as you know, normal as far as you can, you know, see see. Like, not, you know, but I still know that he's got these affiliations, which could very well be like NASA affiliation, perhaps potential CIA affiliation and things like that. So I say all this to the reader before I go to New Mexico. And I say, I'm taking, Jeff wouldn't go with me. So I took Gary because <laughs> Gary wanted to go and he was really willing to go. And I said, okay, let's, let's go. Both of us, we get blindfolded. Okay. Cause this is a place where uh, it's under a no fly zone. And apparently it's a place where there was an alleged crash of a Mm. saucer did i believe that no i didn't believe it did i want to go anyway yes i wanted to go anyway the reason i wanted to go is because there is a growing belief in ufos and i wanted to find out kind of You know, who's responsible? What's going on? Why are people believing in this? These are my questions that I had going into it. So I went into it and I went into it with these scientists. I mean, if people are gonna tell us to believe things these days, it's gonna be scientists because you know, there are those memes that basically say science says blah, you know, whatever it is, (laughs) it's ridiculous. Okay, but this is the case. So I'm like, okay, so I'm gonna go with these people who um, are the top in their field. We're gonna go to New Mexico. I'm going to basically just, it's an ethnography, it's an ethnographic foray into a community of believers who happen, by the way, to be larger than I thought. A lot of them hang out in Silicon Valley or live there. And, um, and I, you know, I, I know Silicon Valley well, I live there. And so um, so I know their language, you know, I kind of know their culture and we go out there and again throughout the if you go and reread that section again in the book i take gary and we we basically confer you know are we being led on you know are we being kind of misinformed is this just you know because this happens in the ufo community you'll get people giving you misinformation uh, and they happen to take you on to a air force base or something to do this and then you as the journalist or the professor go out and you write about it as if it's real I didn't want that to happen. Unfortunately, that happened anyway, regardless of what I did. I could say a million times, I thought I was being misinformed. I thought this was, you know, but that, that that never got out, you know, or it got out to some people, but not the majority. And I honestly, you know, I'm writing an academic book. Most people don't read academic books. Only academics read academic books. So I didn't think it was going to go boom, you know, and, and lots of people were going to read it, but that did happen. Um, and I'm glad that it did, too. So, so yeah, so I'm there with um, Tyler and James, and we go through this. And then what happens is something that I didn't expect at all. James subjects these debris to analysis with his quantum microscopes that he is world famous for creating. And it comes back to be something that he can't explain. So not only do you have me questioning, is this misinformation? But by the end of the book, I'm still saying, are you sure this isn't like, you know, Russian or Chinese or something? And they just berate me like I'm an idiot. Like, no you can't make this up like we have the actual you know the science right to to show and who am i to say i'm a person who's not a non-scientist so i say i just basically describe what my questions are and how they're answered and you know how the narrative goes and um it ends with uh, with in in the vatican right at the vatican yeah. and so i mean these are two very intense places to You know, for religion, you've got New Mexico on the one hand and you've got the Vatican, which, by the way, brings back New Mexico unintentionally. And I had already turned the books in by that time. That last chapter was just an add on um, because I felt like it needed to be in there because it was so incredible to me. It was so incredibly. I just didn't expect any of those things to happen. And they did. And I thought, hmm, this seems like a fitting kind of like. Ending to my book, even though the book is is technically ended. So I sent it to my editor, and she agreed, and so we put that on there. So I guess what I'm saying is that um, I didn't expect any of that to happen, and it all happened. And now, uh, and then, a lot of other things happened too after the book was published. So um, what do I think about it? I don't know. <laughs> all I can say is that um, it was in no way like I questioned being a part of potential misinformation while it was happening, but it's in no way misinformation because I, because of the way that I wrote the book. I wrote it as this is a burgeoning belief system
0: mm-hmm. and I'm yep. in it,
1: I'm in the belief system, I'm in it and I'm not gonna say that I'm not. Um, and I think that that's a, a new way to do my field uh, in religious studies, because a lot of times we put it out there as if we are not connected to the belief system, but we're absolutely in the belief system. How can we not be connected to it? So I just tried to be as honest as possible. But I can see how it's taken. I can see how people think that it looks like a, a complete narrative. And my book is like one of the first big things that happened in this narrative. And um, it was never my intention.
2: No, and I, yeah. thi- I think it's a common... Uh, problem in many many different uh, disciplines from social sciences and humanities is a problem that anthropologists had many times when doing conducting field work Mm -hmm. so well i mean i guess the uh, public facing uh, aspect of addressing such a thing as ufos makes this much more tricky than addressing any other issues, but but I understand what you are saying.
0: No, I had yeah, I had a question precisely related to this and kind of being entangled in the in the in the very system that you that you're trying to question or to create an outside position from in some sort of way. Uh, and it goes back maybe to the question that that we opened with with sort of if you were trying to be absolutely agnostic. Uh, radically agnostic, then it's it's almost impossible to do so because, of course, you come with all sorts of. Uh, well, there is many different ways in which uh, baggage can be can be, you know, looked at um, to say that that of course you're primed in this way or another to say to say something about things, and I was thinking beyond this is uh, going a little bit away from the from the from the book and just a very general question thinking about transformative experiences um i mean in a way it's not not away from the book because you had this experience then that you can maybe um, continue talking about to to relate to the question um i i, I kept thinking uh, this whole time about the about the turin horse uh, experience from nietzsche you know when you saw this uh, this famous moment of the of the horse being beaten and then he sort of crashed transformed uh, uh, Dissipated in many ways. You could you could call it many things. Um, and whether uh, again to go back to patterns and, and predictability, whether the really like massive radical break of your expectations is something that you could say is is a common denominator among all these different things that we call you know transformative conversions. Uh, whether it be a mystic, mystical experience, or 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 something very uh, deeply traumatic, emotional, any kind of catastrophe that just changes, like shakes the ground um, that you're standing on, and challenges every expectation that you've had. If if yeah, the inability, the inability to to, to have predicted it or to have s- formed, shaped anything like it. And why I say the the Turing horse is because well. Um, well, I, I I'll, I'll I'll leave the footnotes there. I'll Just whether you can say a common denominator is uh, is the the inability to predict them. Um.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really um, great reference to Nietzsche and his experience because he's such you know up to that point, right? He seems like such. I would not call him i mean he's definitely not an unfeeling person but he doesn't seem quite empathetic right <laughs> so that kind of breaks it's not only breaks him but it breaks the reader too of nietzsche right we're like wow you know um so yeah so this question of um <clears throat> okay so after i mean let's put it this way at the very beginning when i recognized There was something that I recognized to the UFO phenomena, I guess you'd say, that I found to be different than when I did, say, Catholic history, right? So, like, I wrote a lot about Catholic history. Obviously, I published a lot about it. And I never had this feeling of what I now can call uncanny, the uncanny. And so I didn't know what it was, this feeling that I had. It was, um, it was this. It broke into my reality, um, and it caused me to transform. And I haven't, I haven't necessarily recovered from that. So maybe it's something that one doesn't recover from. So I, so but I did identify it the other day, actually, when I was reading Freud's essay called "The Uncanny," um, which I knew he had written, but I had actually never read it. And what I usually do was I describe this feeling that I had when I had finished my book on purgatory and I had been you know immersed in all of these reports of phenomena that were really weird and aerial phenomena and things from Catholic history like you know from nuns from like 1700s and you know just ongoing and I really didn't know how to think about it. And I kind of made a big list of these things and I knew I was gonna go back to them at some point. But I finished this book and I showed this list to a friend of mine and he looked at it and said it looked like UFO reports, you know? And I laughed and I thought he was crazy. This was a long time ago, this is like 2011. I said, you're crazy. Because I didn't believe, I was a complete scoff, scoffed at anybody who thought about UFOs or talked about them. And so um, what happened then was a series of events one of which was a conference here in my town that featured experiencers, where I met them, and I recognized immediately the patterns were similar to the to the reports, and then that's when I became I uh, read Jeff Kreipl's author's of The Impossible, which has a section on Jacques Vallee, a chapter on Jacques Vallee, and then. I um, read a John Mack's book, Abduction, and then his other book, Passport to the Cosmos. And all of that together in one weekend was way too much for me. And I think what happened was I went back and I reread Teresa of Avila's experience of the little, she calls it like a little angel, which is very, looks exactly like it should be in John Mack's book, Abduction. And then I started looking at the the reports again that I had. And what happened to me was, I thought John Mack called it ontological shock, like where you're shocked, you know, where all of what you thought had just been shattered, that's the ontological shock. Well, that's the term I used, I borrowed from him, and I used that to describe this this period of my life where I was shocked. But now I realize that it wasn't that, it's the uncanny, it's Freud's uncanny. So Freud knows that there's something about the uncanny that hadn't actually been articulated. And he goes back in this essay and he looks at the ways in which the uncanny has been articulated by, you know, people that are in psychology or whatnot. And he says, nobody really gets to the point that there, so he basically says there are different species of the uncanny. And he calls this one particularly terrifying species, one where one recognizes that the belief you had as a child Is actually true. So you go back and like say you believe in the tooth fairy. Well, all of a sudden, what if the tooth fairy is actually real? I mean, that would be pretty scary and horrible and terrifying in many on many levels. Well, I feel that that's what happened to me. I feel that I that things that came back to me and they were like, what? I've been doing this my whole life, and this is what I've been looking at, and it's real. Like I started. I mean, I had the feeling of the uncanny and the uncanny plagued me for a very long period of time and i could and that's what led me into the search so uh yeah so this so there are various forms of this kind of shock that you're talking about like that nietzsche you know had his was particular to him but i had that with respect to this and i i think the the person who described it best is freud and the uncanny
0: um, no, but in thinking yeah in, in in trying to think and this is also something that we uh, briefly talked about um, we already talked about with with regard to the question but we talked about just now with Miguel when thinking about uh, a few opening questions to ask you and I was thinking yeah well the, the limitations of our concepts again and the, the limitations of our of our kind of Trying to name that thing that cannot be named, or trying to, to grasp something that that we know somehow does not fit, because we're constantly sort of we do have we we, we, do, we do have the experience of continuity, right? But we also know what breaks in continuity are. Certain things need to be uh, understood in terms of something that um, a kind of yeah. Uh, there's again an, a, a continuity break right now. <laughs> maybe Um, uh, to to sort of yeah to to challenge ourselves in order to 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 kind of try to create new knowledge we also need to assume what people around us are are, where they are positioning themselves with regard to this like are they doing the same thing that I am doing? Are they also challenging their types of knowledge in the same way? Are they also I'm having to assume more of this how you guys are, are thinking about stuff in order to be able to ask you these questions I'm also doing some mental acrobatics to Here and ask things at the same time. I struggle with that a lot, but um, so yeah in 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 doing that um you know, we create this thing we were talking about earlier with social social cohesion, linguistic cohesion and, and sort of, you know, collective thinking in, in one way or another but because of all the assumptions we have to make isn't aren't those the kind of uh, things that we could see as kind of eternal missteps eternal mini uncannies all the time that's what's happening in language all the time that yeah. break that Wittgenstein talked about the kind of almost eternity you know, you're, you're always sort of it's, ah, it's, it's it's an eternal struggle, um, yet at the same time it's of course the only tool we have. So the limitations of, 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 what, of what language does for the communication of these things that obviously language doesn't feel suited to, mm-hmm. what's the deal with that? Like, what's the deal with the fact that it just feels, is that a, a thing that is just sort of inherent need for wanting to uh, leave something open in order for things to continue to be surprising and and predictable in different ways for novelty to emerge, we have to have this, you know, sort of, call it X factor or whatever, something that we're just, you know, the moving target that we just don't, that we keep gripping at, but we don't ever catch. Um, Yeah, I couldn't formulate it as a question, but just, (laughs) just that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's, so what that suggests to me is this idea, so this is interesting, there was this, this person who is part of the Silicon Valley male you right. And he um, gets in touch with me after my book and really liked it. And he basically was a very astute observer of the different ways in which books about UFOs are written. And he said that he was, he, he thought that the people who were trying to convey it best, Um, they, they wrote in a way that was not, they wrote in really odd ways, like that were not traditionally specific to an academic genre or even to a book genre. You know, they wrote like Jacques Vallée has his journals, right? And my book was written in like such a different way than anything I'd ever written before. Sorry, I
2: I need, I I need to ask for a clarification. Very important. In the Lex Freeman interview that you did... You mentioned when you met Jacques Balé, and that you uh, you were talking with him about his books, and he said you need to read this first. But in the podcast, you never explain which one was the one.
1: Yeah. So strangely, it's a it's his novel. It's called Stratagem.
2: Okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. Um, so he, yeah. So, I mean, think about it. He wants me to read his novel hmm. more than the other books, right? Which are, you know, in the genre of information. And then he has a whole, he has, he has journals and, um, which he still writes, by the way, and publishes. And so, you know, this, this person who I met, he said, this is a distinctive, this, you know, this is a pattern in these books about the UFO genre, like a lot of the best ones in his opinion were ones that were written in a certain style. They weren't, you know, they weren't, they were basically a style that mimicked like life. You know, this is what I did. And why is that? Because what I think people are trying to convey is that thing that you're, you're suggesting there. Um, So, you know, this kind of like this, uh, the X factor or the, um, what, uh, what do you psychoanalysts call it? The remainder, right? Kind of the remainder or, you know, um, a lot of artists reached out to me as well. Um, after the book was published and it really spoke to them and they sent me art. So I have, I have pottery and poetry and you know, people did videos and songs and things like this. So I think that they all had experiences. Now, this has something to do with, like, the idea, can material culture, like a book or something like that, what can it convey an experience, you know, kind of a reality even. People have just I had a person ask me this yesterday. Um, You know, do you think that, in fact, uh, there's a woman, uh, Dorothy Esau, um she's an experiencer, she's not well known, but um, she might be soon. Uh, she's passed away, but she had experiences that she videoed and she thinks that these actual video, the videos are an evolutionary, they help people evolve. When you watch the video, it actually helps, it changes you and you you become different and more evolved in her opinion. So this is like, This is a claim that she makes about the videos that she took.
2: I have um, a question in relation to one of the claims that I think we can find in the in the book, which is that uh, you seem to be saying that technology and I don't know to which extent phenomena like the videos of this woman that you are mentioning, but technology and the internet, by this opening quotation of the famous statement about the internet that David Bowie did, might yeah. be or maybe a form of alien intelligence. Yeah. And do, do you do this a uh, comparison of? Uh, the, the, the smartphone and the monolith, no?
1: Monolith.
2: In, yeah. in uh, 2001. So, but at the end, I don't know if this is the way in which you picture uh, your analysis, but there seems to be a sort of punishment uh, against the Promethean attitude, no? So we produce. Uh, or we have this sort of carrier of something that could be alien intelligence, which is something that I would appreciate if you uh, clarify, if you really consider that this uh, situation that um, Clark and Kubrick describe could be feasible or not. Uh, And then if, when you are talking about ground zero for new forms of religion, this control mechanism that Valier uh, could be describing if this is the sort of um, almost uh, thermostatic uh, control mechanism that restrains the Promethean attitude or punishes when we are trying to to move forward in this sort of yeah, uh, paradis- paradigmatic uh, change of state or something like that. Well, with this ellipsis, no, that in 2001 we see, right, in the film cut, that seems to be like, yeah, okay, we are uh, changing epoch, we are uh, moving forward because there is something that produces a form of singularity so yeah i mean how to how to phrase this clarifications regarding do you really think that this hypothesis that we can see in one interpretation of 2001 like okay we have these higher forms of technology language etc that are granted (laughs) but by alien intelligence if this is feasible is something that you consider and if then you are really suggesting that there is some sort of uh, Promethean attitude that needs to be constrained because it could have a bad outcome for us. Or
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. like the Heidegger quote at the end. Yeah, he's pretty. Yeah, he's pretty dismal on the future. Hmm, yeah, <laughs> with respect to technology and, and us. Um, and yeah, that's definitely. Uh, that's a current in my thinking. Um, I don't know. I mean, okay. So, two things about the interpretation of two thousand one is Space Odyssey. Um, I think that he, I don't know what Kubrick intended, but I think that there are two per- potential. I I vacillate between two ideas. The first one is that he's basically saying that the, um, the monolith, the cell phone, is the mediator of this new religiosity which is faked, okay? And you know, here you have in 2001 A Space Odyssey, you have government being the bad guy again, right, with the government basically sending this guy on a mission he doesn't even know what he's doing i mean if that's not what i saw with tyler you know i mean there was so much compartmentalization in his life he could keep you know he had so many constraints in what he could do and i had constraints just associating with him like i couldn't he couldn't meet friends of mine from other countries he'd have to report it and things like this so there were so many constraints so um in that sense 2001 a space odyssey is Kubrick basically saying you're going to have a big, you know, um, this is going to be a big sham. And it's going to be mediated through through the screen, right? And, uh, okay, so there's that kind of idea of what he could possibly be talking about. And if you look at all of his other, you know, if you look at his work in general, which is fairly dismal. I mean, the outlook that he has, it has always been fairly dismal, right? So look, uh, Clockwork Orange, is that a happy movie? no. You know, these are like punishments that we go through because he's teaching us something. You know, I mean, I never I never say, hey, let's have a good time and watch a Kubrick film. Right. So it's never like a good time. Um, It's always a some type of lesson that we'll be learning, albeit in artistic ways. Okay, so he's artistic. So, yeah. So um, and visionary and all these things. So he's he's telling us something here. So um, is he telling us that there's going to be a sham? yeah it seems like it um is he it it, there's the other idea that that i lead on with david bowie that you know the internet is an alien life form which i think is probably more correct and this is what i this is why i think that because the two people i go out to the desert with are they're biotechnologists so we're not just this isn't just tech that's outside of our bodies Right? We're talking about biohacking. We're talking about you know hacking into uh, the very code you know of our of who and what we are like um, human DNA. So I mean yeah, is that a game changer? Definitely um, And how do I view this? I, I don't know. I can honestly say I don't know, but if I were to guess, this is what I would say, I would say that we are at the point now of this uh, short story, which is fictional, but was published in Nature about 20 years ago by Ted Chiang, the um, science fiction author. And it's called, I think it's called Breads from the Table. And it's about um, the severing of humans into metahumans. And and it's not, the metahumans aren't aggressive. They don't take over the humans. They just live parallel with them. They live side by side. But humans can only grasp the grandeur of the metahumans because the metahumans are at such an advanced level. So is that kind of you know? So when I when I do get a peek into say with the world of Tyler and stuff, it's like a world of almost like a world of metahumans. And um, and I can't help but think that if there's a You know, if there's any story that's being, you know, that we can tell and say, this is it, you know, kind of thing. It's going to be that one, crumbs from the table. Um, Yeah, so I hope that answers your question about 2001, A Space Odyssey. And, and, you know, it's the, the, the monolith is the phone, like, you know, the major mediation of the message is through these screens, obviously. I mean, we're speaking in one right now together, which I honestly think is positive and good. Okay, Uh, so am I, am I bullish on humanity or am I bearish on humanity? You know, I don't know.
2: It has an interesting meta layer because obviously we have developed stuff like the iPad based Mm -hmm. on the images that we saw in 2001. (laughs) So (laughs) because of that inception, of an idea of a technological device that looks like that, we have created the conditions for that sort of thing. But please continue, because I, if I interrupted you.
1: No, I think that's a it's a good question. Um, I also saw, like, if you think about it, I teach sometimes in my class on religion. I have a class on called Women in Religion, and I teach Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, because I think that it's it's really about this this turn that we see today you know, where we create something. And I mean, is it a monster? I mean, there's a love relationship there too, right? Between Victor Frankenstein and the monster. Um, so, yeah, I mean.
0: Can I say something? No, just, I, I just wanted to, to add, I mean, it kind of, ties back with what you were saying earlier with uh with the idea of alien abduction and it being a trope that is of course you know not not something that that out of nowhere because it's something that uh it's it's in the in the last angel of history a uh, uh, film essay by uh john icon uh, it's, it's most well put where you know i can't remember who is the person who's speaking in, in the moment of the film but they say um you know, alien abduction already happened, of course, it's just been the massive transportation of uh, a lot of people from one place to another in in dreadful conditions. Uh, So the fear for that is not something that's just a kind of mystic invention of, uh, and indeed like all of these things that we continue to imagine through science fiction are on the one hand, not that new. They're like eternal conditions we have uh, always lived through and and sort of been challenged uh, uh, with as far as i know right because i'm only speaking from this perspective that has consumed just all these different types of media that say that that's what's been happening in the same way that uh, we could say like what are you doing when you're looking at kubrick are you having a good time or are you uh, <laughs> you know what i mean like is it is it uh, which which way do you look at do you look at it from with regard to this idea of like are we trying to be challenged uh, are we trying to uh continually sort of break our assumptions so is that why something like uh Uh, speculative science fiction um, that is of course very very uncanny and very eerie and very uh uh, uh, well disconcerting and not necessarily what you would define as a good time like something like a kubrick film all of these different narratives right we we wouldn't call them um all of these tropes or all of these archetypes whatever we want to call them we wouldn't call them uh religious narratives, but there is something to the way that they guide our behavior, right? That mm-hmm. maybe does come close to this. There is this ritualistic element. There is this, uh, I understand that I need to mediate in this way in order to arrive at a certain experience. Like for example, they're going to, this, to, to the cinema and having you know the moment that you enter, that you sit, there is silence there, etc. cetera. Um, and would you say, yeah, how far would you say uh, that goes. Like, how far would you say all those narratives can actually be compared to uh, the the very same mechanisms that make religious uh, narratives function? All these different things that we do, like, uh, yeah, just the, the inventing of, uh, of different... Uh, predictive ways in which we can engage with with each other through narratives I, I don't even know how to phrase it because it's, it involves even you know the, the phrasing of this sentence itself in a way. Um, but if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I I
1: mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's um, so okay so how far can we go to compare them with kind of like um, Well, okay. So people are still very religious all throughout the world, even though people have, you know, people in my field basically suggested um, that there would be secularization and that religion, religious belief would like fall away. And we have seen that right in Western Europe and, you know, like, but here, not in the United States. And also most of the world are still members of a religion. And when you do look and see what's going on there, is you see that, um, well, you know, people's experiences of the sacred, which they generally experience in groups, by the way, people have groups that they go to and they, you know, and they're having experiences that are very real experiences And they're powerful experiences and they're also experiences that transform people and keep them coming back. Now that's a form of power. Okay. And so those experiences are being mediated. Right. And so I think that um, when you have a large group of people, you throw in music, right, which is, and you know what happens in dancing and things like this. Well, these are all happening in these, groups of people who are practicing religions they're all doing that and i think that uh, those if you're a government you know you're definitely going to want to mediate that control it you know put some parameters on it um because like those are powerful gatherings so um d- how do i see so when you get people together like the the uh the UFO religiosity is still mostly a solitary type of event. When a person goes out and they happen to see a UFO that maybe they have a friend that they see it with or something like that, um, it's generally a solitary transformative event. So it's very different from this experience that people have when they go to a giant, you know, like thousands of people in an auditorium or something, you know, where they're like, you can feel that. Um, power so now this solitary event gets put into you know it gets um translated into a movie and I do talk about this in the book how a lot of these solitary events you got these things called mufon, you know these these UFO Network groups that create databases where people can put down you know hey I had this you know and they they give this this group their event Well, a lot of those events were taken up by Hollywood production companies like Hangar One and made into UFO consumer products that had nothing to do with the event that these people experienced. But then you have events that are witnessed by a lot of people, UFO events that are witnessed by a lot of people. And now because of the internet, you've got these people who are saying, this is just happening right now with this book that I'm doing. I'm I'm actually working with a few people who have just realized that they're all part of a giant UFO sighting that happened in New York in the 1960s. And they all saw as kids or whatnot, or even as adults, they saw the same event and they're coming together to form groups and they each have different, they each saw the same thing. And it was corroborated by police reports and things like that, right? Because At that time, police reports were more inclined to not be secretive about it. It was in the 1960s, you know, when it was still fairly unregulated. Um, So I guess I guess those would be my thoughts about what you bring up about this. You know, how far can we make this comparison between I guess I, I guess I'm still asking that question, too, to tell you the truth, like, I mean, this is such a new kind of you know the what's happening now is so fast-paced that i think that it's up for a lot of analysis right now you know like i don't think i can make any kind of like major conclusion about it Um, i just have to kind of follow it as it goes
2: Uh, because i don't know if we see uh, for example expressions of tribalism from these groups of people you know what I mean, so when we see <clears throat> other forms of belief that create this atmosphere or even subcultures okay, that exhibit tribalism, since you have mentioned this kind of individual character of the experience of the UFO sighting. Uh, somehow they are detached from the, this very powerful thing, which is to create in contemporary uh, urban cities, the tribal movements, and this sort of yeah, inner protection, reaction towards externalized forms of authority, etc. No? This creates disruptions in the balance of power that we can see with all the conspiracies blah 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 and all the mm-hmm. recent events no so if mm-hmm. these new forms of religion emerge and then they express this tribal aspect it could be interesting to see the development of that because obviously after the pandemic and all this. Uh, things regarding the breakdown of consensus reality, conspiracy theories emerging uh, in mainstream media, etc. etc. I cannot speculate about how religions are going to evolve in in the current conditions of uh, digital communication, social networks, etc. etc.
1: Yeah, you're so right. I mean they're definitely not going to look like the traditional
2: religion,
1: you know, it's going to be something completely different. That's why the alignment here in the United States with the military is an interesting development in my view.
2: Can you expand on that, please?
1: Yes. So what's happening here is that the United States is kind of made its pronouncements and it's also developed its own um, you know, it's, it's created alignment. So you talked about To The Stars Academy, mm-hmm. right? Which yeah, yeah. So Jacques Vellet actually pointed out to me that this isn't the first time a rock star was, you know, was, uh, you know, tasked to create this kind of UFO group uh, to appeal to the youth, right? And kind of like get them on board. Um, and so I think it was, was there, like, it was a very old band that we would not know, but it's, like, I think it was, like, the Trongs or something. I could be wrong, okay? But it was a band from the 1960s or early 70s, and it had the uh, the, the singer in the band uh, created a group with the, with the government to kind of study UFOs, and it was kind of this thing. And so Jacques was basically, you know, he didn't say that it was, like, this... You know this was intentional again you know this is a kind of intentional thing but I mean he implied it
2: <laughs> in terms of a psyop
1: yeah in terms of a psyop he was actually they asked him to be a part of that but he did not he was not a part of it
2: because when then when we read um when we read for example the 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 outspring of of, uh, the New Age movement out of the Stanford Research Institute and and research such as the changing images of man, you start to think about, okay, this was the normal development of culture in a particular moment in time? Or was this a sort of... um, I don't know, because I am not a big fan of conspiracy theories. And I, uh, I don't know, but I, I take things as a sort of, okay, out of complexity, and many layers of complexity, there is a cascading effect, and emergence appears, and things collide together, etc. So I think, okay, it's quite likely that these people, Joseph Campbell, these scientists, and uh, Stanford receives a lot of money. I don't know if this is a cons- a construction that it's uh, uh, driven by uh, state forces or if this is something more organic. But when you are mentioning this, I cannot stop thinking about oh my god, but all these things, cyber cyber culture, in Silicon Valley or this uh, Stanford Research Institute actually created the conditions of this sort of uh, yeah dystopia on your daily life at home with platform economics, Amazon, etc., and then utopia in terms of engagement with eastern Eastern really uh, religio- religiosity um, different forms of holism or utopian projects such as uh, I don't know Starlink or anything that maybe Elon Musk is, is pursuing, etc. It's, it creates a sort of uh, late 20th century, beginning of the 21st century narrative of technological development and cultural development after the war, if you know what I mean, with this myriad of crazy ideas. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. So do you think is uh, are these movements like something that were the result of uh, organic processes of history, etc.? Or do you think there is some sort of tailoring the conditions for for this cultural... I
1: think that the answer yeah yeah i think if i were to answer that question i would say both because who's to say that that's not the organic mechan, you know machinations of history that influence hasn't always been something that people have used of course they have um i mean look at i mean especially history when we can identify what you know, what we can extract from history, we see that being the case. So there's a book that I just read, actually. Um, It's called The Shadow Elite. Mm. And it was, um, it's written in 2009 by, um, I think her name is, her last name is Weddell. And she's an anthropologist at George Mason University. And George Mason University here is a university in D.C., Washington, D.C., And a lot of people go there who are interested in politics and kind of elite politics as well. And what she does is she basically spent time in Eastern Europe and, um, you know, basically identified what she called the shadow elite. If a non-academic had written that book, it would have been called a conspiracy theory. But she's an academic and she identifies the various mechanisms that people used in order to wield power. And then she basically presents us a picture that this is going to happen in the United States. And now she's written it in 2009. Um, and so she identifies the the rise in techno culture and the ways in which that's being used by the shadow elite, how the shadow elite not only creates it, but wields it. We know that the internet was, was created by the military. Right. So, you know, and so, and the military generally keeps its technologies, for many years before, you know, people like us get a benefit from it. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm not so, I take conspiracy theories on a case by case basis. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I can't say, ah, conspiracy, and then use that as a kind of way to discount something, you know, that you've got to use it on a case by case basis. Um, here's here's something that I observed, while just a year before the June 25th release of the Pentagon report here in the United States on UFOs or aerial phenomena, UAPs, uh, a year before that, I started to receive phone calls from people from major media outlets here. And we're talking about Washington Post, you know, that pe- uh, media outlets of that caliber. Um, calling me and asking me to comment on you know what was going to happen with UAPs and UFOs and so at first I thought it was just kind of because of my book but the more they came the more I realized that there had to have been some some consensus at some point among the press that they were going to cover this because there were so many of them calling me I mean it was like several every week and some of them didn't actually I so I started to ask them questions and I said look why is everyone calling me and asking me about this? You know more about it than me, you know? So can you please tell me what's going on, you know? And some of them said, I don't know what's going on. All I know is that the senators are asking for a report. A report is gonna happen. It's gonna be about UAPs or UFOs. And I don't really wanna write on it, but I have to. (laughs) So this happened. And um, so by the time, you know, by the time of the report, I had already known, you know, everything that was going to, not everything, but I knew it was going to be said in the report. I knew where it was going to be covered. Um, I knew that a lot of the reporters didn't want to cover it, but they were given a, you know, they're like a mandate to to cover it because this was going to happen. This was coming down and this was going to happen. So, I mean, what does that mean? You know, I mean, that's, that was my actual experience. I don't know. Makes me wonder. (laughs) I don't know what to say about it other than that's what happened.
0: No, no, no. That's really the case of fictions making themselves real or just, (laughs) you know, (laughs) (laughs) you're in it before it actually happens and then it's...
1: It was really weird. Absolutely.